0: Jesus, we process your gospel into the midst of the congregation to remember that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I pray now, Jesus, that you would let your word come into our hearts. I pray that you'd help me as I preach. I pray for this Advent season to be one in which we draw near to you, and you promise to draw near to us when we do that. And I pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Christmas is just too important to celebrate only on December 25th. So we have the 12 days of Christmas after it, but we also have the four weeks of Advent leading up to it. And it's a time when we can more adequately appreciate the coming of Jesus, both of his comings, his second coming in the distant future, or maybe this afternoon, we don't know when, and his first coming, which happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, today begins advent and maybe you've never been part of a church a liturgical church or a church that recognized a christian calendar uh, somebody in, in bible study this week said they mentioned it at work and the people they were talking to had no idea what advent was they just never heard of it um, not everybody has recognized this period sadly it's very helpful i think christmas is so big with the incarnation the word became flesh god dwelt among us it takes more than even 12 days to fully appreciate what that means. So we're gonna pay attention to the experience of waiting in these four weeks of Advent. We're waiting for a specific thing, mind you. We, we, it's for Jesus to return and to make all things right. Because of that phone that is in your pocket, I think culture as a whole has become bad at waiting. Right, we don't wait anymore. We multitask. We can either distract and entertain ourselves with that phone, or we could even be productive. Just look around the dentist office or uh, a bus stop of high school kids. Everyone, it seems, is staring at their device like this. They're not waiting, they're working or playing or doing something else. I think as a society, we have lost the ability to wait well. And this year, I've subtitled this sermon series, Hasten the Day, Speed Along the Day. Of course, You can't and I can't change the date upon which Jesus is going to return, but we can change our experience of the passage of time, specifically by how we use it and by what we focus on. Now, we typically don't like any kind of waiting. If you really like waiting, I think you're an anomaly. Most people do not like waiting. And waiting on Jesus has a couple of challenging particulars. One is We don't like not knowing the details of the future. I don't know what tomorrow holds or next year. I don't know how many days I've got to live. I don't know, we just don't know the future at all. And we also don't like living in a situation of unresolved tensions. There's a lot of conflict in our world globally and in our lives personally. And there's a lot of suffering. We pray through those cards in morning prayer every week. And that's just a small sampling of the pain and the suffering and the unresolved conflict and tensions that we all live with in various degrees. So this kind of waiting is hard. And in this seemingly long delay, it seems long to us that Jesus has not returned, unfortunately, many people turn away from faith and they look for a better way to use their time or do something that's more interesting or more entertaining or more immediately gratifying. How would you describe your current use of time? Time is a gift, right? Everyone, it's a great equalizer. Everyone gets 24 7, no more, no less. And how are you using the hours of your day? We can spend time, we can waste it, we can invest it, we can even kill time. We have lots of different expressions like that. And it, th- those things raise the important Advent question, which is how does the Lord want me to use this time while we wait? I'm going to give us four things today that I'm drawing out of the gospel text, and I want to start with the first one being learning to follow. While we wait for Jesus to return, we should be learning to follow him. In this time of year, I typically jump back into the lectionary, um, which is, it's basically a list of scriptures that line up with the Sundays of the season. It's in the back of your prayer book. If you've never seen one, it's, I think it's on page 717. You can look through a lectionary. It helps us Focus on the season that we're in. So for Advent, it's real appropriate to go to those scripture texts, and those are the ones that we read this morning. And um, the the gospel assigned for this Sunday, this year, puts us in Mark's gospel, and it's something that the scholars call the little apocalypse. Jesus' teaching in Mark 13 is a response to a comment about how impressive the temple was. Herod, the political leader, massively expanded the temple in Jesus' days over 46 years. And it was impressive, one of the wonders of the world. And someone had marveled about the temple to Jesus, and he said, it's gonna be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And what follows is uh, a shift in Jesus' speaking in chapter 13 of Mark. He, He shifts into a style of language that would be more common in the prophet Daniel. It's apocalyptic style. It's, um, you don't want to read it necessarily literally, although some of it will literally be fulfilled, and therein lies the confusion. It tends to be cosmic in scope. It tends also to speak of catastrophe, especially the imminent catastrophe that's going to happen to the temple and Jerusalem and the Jewish religion, religion as it's being practiced in those days. Now, um, there is a lot of confusion around this, these kind of texts and speculation about it, I'm certain, I'm certain that after Christ returns, it will make sense to us perfectly. However, it wasn't written for when Christ returns. It was actually written for us now. So there is is a teaching in here that is important for us to, to integrate into our lives and to understand. It's for us now. Now, Jesus was speaking to four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and for some reason, Andrew, thrown in with the inner three on this particular instance. And they had, um, they had gone across the valley and were up on the Mount of Olives, which looks down on the city. Even today, you've seen those pictures of the Dome of the Rock, the Shining Gold Dome. That's taken from up on the Mount of Olives. So they went across and sat there and were looking at Herod's temple. And they were asking Jesus to elaborate a little more on what he had just said. When will these things happen? What will be the signs that we should look for to know that this is about to occur? And Jesus gives them some very specific things. He says, first of all, there's gonna be false messiahs. There will be people coming claiming to be the messiah in order to deceive others and to lead people astray. Don't, he says, don't pay attention to them. He also says that as my followers, you're gonna be arrested and you're gonna be brought before leaders. You're gonna be put on trial. There's gonna be a lot of testing And the magnificent temple is, in fact, going to be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another one. In fact, to this day, there are huge stones down below the retaining wall. By the western wall, they're still laying there where the Romans threw them off of the temple mount and they smashed the pavement. They're huge. They took that whole, they burned the temple and threw all the stones off the temple mount. It's totally gone. And all that was prophesied to happen. Jesus said this is going to happen. And not only did, it, did all these things happen in their day, it continues to happen today. These things, there's nothing in the Scripture, in these prophecies, that means something else has to occur before Jesus can return. He literally could come today before lunch. There's, there's every indication that's possible. In fact, we should live as though it's possible. Now... Um, Christianity was not easy for those at that, in that first generation, but it's not easy today. It's always difficult. That's why it's um, necessary for us to learn. That's what discipleship is about, becoming a student of Jesus, learning to follow him. So we have to learn how to live this faith in our time, and um, that's the first, first point I want to say of how do we not be asleep? How do we wait well? We start by learning to follow. And throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus is calling people to become his students, to become his disciples. That's one of the key key themes of Mark's Gospel. Are you a student of Jesus? Are you willing to follow him? His Gospel is written in such a way that is inviting disciples, not just then, but now, as we read it. So I would define a disciple as, um, or discipleship, as learning to live like Jesus lived by walking with Jesus, even today. He's resurrected, He's alive, His Spirit is with us, learning to walk with Him so that we can learn to live like Him. It's it's being with Him and understanding how He lives. That's a loose definition. This week, we finished Alpha up at Urban Bean. It was the last week, and it it was the subject of how and why should I tell others about the faith. And in that conversation, I was brought back to the early days when I'd first become a believer, and I thought, appropriately, I'm supposed to tell others, but I misunderstood and thought i had to have answers to questions and as soon as i tried doing that i realized how difficult it is if you're a new believer and at some point i learned the lesson from the man healed in john chapter nine he was born blind and he met jesus and he, jesus healed him he gets a ton of questions because of this but that man says i don't know who he is i think he's a prophet but here's what i do know and i was blind and i met jesus and now i see And for me, that was easy as a tool because you don't have to have a theological degree to to do that. All you have to have is some personal experience of Jesus. You were a sinner, and you met the Savior, and your life is different somehow now. You were spiritually dead and blind, and now you're alive and can see spiritually. It's enough to simply tell what you've experienced very helpful. Learning to follow is learning that. But one of the other things that I learned about it was when I started to give those testimonies of what I was experiencing of the gospel, I got conflict. It got harder. My life got better, but it got harder. People pushed back against it. I thought they would be excited about this, and they weren't. They were surprisingly resistant. Now, back to Mark's gospel, I think the cosmic clash that he's describing in verses 24 to 27 is not just about when he comes back in the future. Although I do think he's gonna come on the clouds. I do think he's gonna come with great glory. I do think the whole world will see it. It's gonna be impressive. I don't think that paragraph is only talking about then. Otherwise that thing about this generation will not pass away, it doesn't make much sense. It seemed, people have to do theological gymnastics to explain that, that line in there. Because that generation did pass away, the people that were alive then, and some of those things of when Christ returns later have not yet occurred. But his first coming was cosmic in scope as well. It was a clash. So my my second point of how to wait well is not just learning to follow, it's actually expecting conflict as part of the waiting. When Jesus came, he was coming as a king to claim territory from enemies. It, it caused a clash, a confrontation. And when he goes to the cross, and you read the, the passion narratives, you see cosmic things happening. The sky grows dark, it says there was an earthquake, rocks split open, it says some of the tombs were open, and people that were dead were given life again and were seen walking around. It was, it was cosmic because the Son of Man was conquering sin and death and Satan, and it shook the universe. Something like that has never happened before and will never have to happen again, thankfully. And so I think when he starts talking about the son of man coming, he's using language from the prophet Daniel about this one like a son of man who's presented before the ancient of days and is given dominion and power to rule. When Jesus died, he conquered. And when he rose, he ascended and is ruling. Jesus is our Lord. And our our reading today picks up at a transition point in his teaching, I think that he was asked about when the temple's going to be destroyed, and he gives very specific signs about that, and then he adds to it something that there are not going to be any specific signs for. It's going to be sudden and unexpected. He says, um, he went on to address, quote, that day or that hour. Not these things in those times, that day and that hour. And it's a reference to the specific day when he will come back. He says not even the sun knows when that will be. Only the Father knows. And so he's changed here, and this is the common reference that they would have understand to the the return of Christ, and he starts talking about spiritual sleepiness, stay awake, stay awake. So my, my third point is waiting well means avoiding spiritual sleepiness. In that last paragraph of Mark 13, Jesus tells the followers to be on guard, and four times mentions staying awake four times. And the chapter ends with a bold command that explicitly is not just for the four men that asked the question, but for all of us. He says, and what I say to you, to you four, I say to all, stay awake. So learning to follow, expecting suffering and hardship and persecution, avoiding spiritual sleepiness. And then the last one, discipleship while we wait also means receiving grace. There's, there's, this is good news. We often fail and we have to try again and we fall down and we have to be picked up by the Lord. In the very next chapter of Mark, the disciples are caught asleep three times. I think it's a bit ironic. Four times Jesus says, stay awake, stay awake. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And, and Jesus tells a parable of a, of a person, a doorman uh, watching over his master's house, waiting for the return. And, um, and in that he, Mark goes to the labor of of mentioning the four watches of the night as military folk would have have understood them. So he says, quote, therefore, stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those were kind of the four watches of the night for a, a, a guard on duty. What follows in Mark shows definite events happening at all four of those things. So those watches of the night. In Mark 14, verse 2, the very next one, it says, And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And they go into the upper room, and he does all the upper room teaching. And then by midnight, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's saying, Watch and pray. Wait with me. And he goes off a little bit, and you know the story. He kneels down, and he prays, and he's in great agony because of what's about to happen. And his disciples keep falling asleep. Three times, they keep falling asleep. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour, he says in Mark 14, 37? And then later, Mark 14, 72, after Jesus has been arrested, and by the way, they all scattered, and he goes alone. He stayed awake alone, and he's arrested alone. The rooster crows, and Peter sees it from a distance and goes out and weeps because he has denied Jesus. That's one of the watches of the night, the rooster crowing. And then finally, um, Mark 15:1, it says, as soon as the, it was morning the chief priests held a consultation. And this is where they gathered around and they brought all kinds of inconsistent accusations against Jesus and they decided to condemn him. And they condemned him there to death. Now in the garden of Gethsemane while they're praying, Jesus makes a point that I want us to see. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is why we need grace. Grace requires us to admit our sinfulness and to let Jesus's perfection and goodness carry us. So how does the Lord want us to use the time while we wait? Overall, it's by developing a relationship with him that relies on his strength. And those things, learning to follow, expecting conflict, uh, avoiding sleepiness, and receiving grace, that's all part of having that relationship with the living God. Mark's gospel has three general categories of people in it. There are the disciples, there are the crowds, and there are the religious leaders. And he goes through multiple examples of how none of them understood it. They're all lost to one degree or another. And his gospel comes to a conclusion when a Roman centurion says, after seeing Jesus die, surely this man was the son of God. The Roman soldier gets it. None of the other people got it. And I think that's helpful for us. I think it's, it's instructive, you know, that to recognize being lost. We can't do this on our own. We can't save ourselves. Jesus has to go do it and then bring us along. He stayed awake by himself. He kept watch perfectly, knowing how weak we are and that we couldn't do it. He went to that cross alone and forsaken to bear our sin and our guilt. Thankfully, the sleepiness in the Garden of Gethsemane is not the end of those disciples. It's not like, you guys failed, you're out. I'm going alone without you. But there's more. Mark leaves his gospel open-ended You know, there'll be brackets in your Bible that will say, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 and following. I think people that maybe didn't understand what Mark was trying to do felt the need to tag on an ending. But I think it's left open intentionally. It's left open for our sake as readers to ask the question of whether or not we want to be his followers and disciples. And so here's how it ends. These are the last three verses of Mark's gospel. This is Mark 16, six to eight. And this is the angel at the tomb speaking to the women on that first Easter morning. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Mark puts his pen down. That's where it's left. They go off not speaking, afraid, and um, there's a meeting in Galilee gonna happen. That's kinda how it ends. And I think it's for dramatic effect to ask the question, what will I personally do with these truths that Jesus has been crucified for our sins and is resurrected? He's alive somewhere in this universe, ruling, unseen. What will I do with that? Will I become a disciple or not? Mark's gospel is asking that question. And I like that Jesus prearranged a meeting in Galilee, and the angel uh, tells them, go to Galilee. As he told you, he'll see you there. You know, we fall down, we fail, we're asleep when we shouldn't be, we don't wait well, we're impatient, we backslide, all that stuff, and Jesus has planned meetings for us to reconnect. He's constantly doing that. John's gospel tells us that on the north shore of the lake, Peter is recommissioned three times. He's reinstated because he denied Jesus three times. And then when we read in the book of Acts, we see what happens when the the Holy Spirit comes to empower these disciples. They become more and more effective as witnesses. And we're here today because Jesus worked through them. Their witness to the world grew and grew and grew and grew. It's miraculous that like two billion people on this planet claim Christ now. That's a work of God. And it was because he used sinful people who are trusting his strength to save people. That's what's happening. Now, this time of Advent waiting, it's for working on discipleship. It's for learning to live like Jesus. So, of course, the classical spiritual disciplines are useful. Worship, you're here already. Reading the scriptures. Prayer, service, fellowship with other believers. All of these things are important. I I commend them. But since discipleship, as I'm saying this morning, is primarily about a relationship with the living God, I want you to ask him what he would have you do over these four weeks. Is there something he wants you to do? Is there a person he wants you to meet with? Is there a certain part of the scriptures he wants you to read? Does he want you to, to take on fasting or some giving up of something or taking on something new? Ask him and then do what he says. It's about faithfully following him to learn, learn how to live this way. So Advent is upon us. Even seeking him like that is what it means to stay awake and to wait well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are so patient with us. I thank you that you did accomplish great things through those sleepy disciples. That's us, and you get the glory, Lord. Would you come and help us draw near? Today is a new year. It's a start over on the Christian calendar. Would you help us resolve to live differently by your power? I ask it in your holy name. Amen.